Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. What happens when your youngest goes to Baylor as a freshman and their football team sucks? I mean, really bad. You know what? You wear the colors anyway. You wear green anyway. You support your daughter, and and you still go to the football games and hold grin and bear it. Anyway, hopefully they'll win this weekend. We're we're praying for a win. We need a W column, but it's it's getting tough. It's especially at least it's cooled off. So at least now you're not in a hundred degree stadium. That's right. Or not because they play their games normally like at noon or one. Anyway, I digress. I just had to throw that out there. So what we want to talk about today is number one, why headline investing doesn't work. Why, for instance, we got the attacks on Israel and everybody knee jerk reaction. Oh, got to go buy defense stocks. Got to go buy defense stocks. Only a couple look good. The rest of them look like trash. So you don't necessarily want to do that. Also, we're talking about bond market paying. We've been talking about this for the last month, the cost of money and interest rates. Interest rates are the cost of money. And what does this mean for bonds? Because bonds are are really on the, either they're going to go down hard again if we can't tame inflation, or it might be a rip, snort, and rally, and it might be the time for bonds. Is the 40-year super cycle in bonds over? And, and it already is over. They've been dropping for the last 40 years. And just in the last year, they've rose. I even found an article that said they crept up. Crept up. They skyrocketed. They went from less than 1% up to over 5 I mean, that's hundreds of a percent increase. So I don't know where you get the crep up, but we're going to talk about the, that. And finally, Sam Bankman fraud, SBF, the alleged stealer, he did it, stealer of client money. Uh, his girlfriend, Carolyn Epstein, she flipped on him, man. She said, no, he did it. He instructed us to do it. And he told us to take billions of clients' money. She went on in court under oath and said that. So SBF, he's going to have a tough road to hoe. He's going to have to figure out what he's going to do now. In any event, let's just dive right down into it. Let's talk about um, why headline investing doesn't work. So everybody wanted to, 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 I mean, I got calls from clients, four or five clients. Hey, hey, what do you think? Does Lockheed Martin look good or does this stock look good? Shouldn't we buy, Israel's getting attacked. Shouldn't we start buying defense stocks? So with that, I want to go to Don and I want to talk about some of the defense stocks. I want to look at that and see whether the actual price matches 
what people are doing. Are investors actually, are the, is the big money really flowing into defense stocks? So, Don, why don't you talk about that a little bit and why headline investing often doesn't work? Usually it's late in the game. Well, uh, headline, th there's an old saying on Wall Street that says, buy the rumor, sell the news. Yeah. So you really have to split the, this discussion into things that are anticipated to happen and talked about. Like, for example, uh, if Apple was going to have, uh, when Apple has their September presentations on their new products, very often Apple runs up into that situation and then all of a sudden they'll come out with the product. The product may or may not exceed people's expectations, but the stock doesn't go higher. That's something that people already knew. The market already knew that that was happening. Uh, it went higher. And then uh, when the news actually came out, it may not necessarily support the quote unquote wonderful news that they're describing their products. Now, when a black swan happens, and what I'm showing here is a chart of ITA, this is the US Aerospace and Defense ETF. When something comes out of the blue, that's uh, more of a black or gray swan because the market wasn't anticipating that that would happen. So looking at ITA, this is the Aerospace and Defense uh, ETF. You can see it had the initial gap up uh, and then the first day of the event, you mark the high, mark the low, uh, a break below the low. This is really no different than an earnings gap up on an individual name. Uh, if it breaks below the low of the day, then that's a failure. If it breaks above the high, then it's, a, a, it's confirmation. It's certainly no guarantee. But in this case with ITA, you can see we went higher two days and then we went down yesterday and we're kind of tight in here today. One of the problems with, however, there, this is several things that you need to think about here. <laughs> ITA is aerospace and defense. Uh, the biggest component aerospace is Boeing and Boeing can't get out of its own way. You can see Boeing gapping down today. So this is gonna weigh on the individual components or it's gonna weigh on the overall ETF. There is no pure defense. Um, there's, there's the one that we're playing it with was DFEN. I'm aware of the Boeing, uh, it's basically three times ITA, uh, and we haven't really made any progress since our entry. This is really where it was on the first day. Some of the individual names are acting better, but are you really going to buy six or seven or eight stocks? Uh, let's take a look at a couple of them. Here's General Dynamics, first of all. Uh, that just made a higher high today after its first move up uh, on Monday, which was the first day that the information came out. Prior to that, and this was the best looking chart. This is why we've been talking about this one in the videos. It had the most relative strength leading into it. If you look at things like Lockheed Martin, uh, this is terrible looking chart, was all the way at the lows. Finally, just creeping higher on the fifth day after it happened. Uh, Northrop Grumman is another one, NOC. This one is following through to the upside today. So relative to where things closed on the first day, it's looking a lot better. Uh, RTX is Raytheon. Terrible looking chart, but making a higher high. 
Uh, LHX is Harris. Not not above the opening days high, still inside uh, after the move up. Uh, one that we already had in the 21 over 21 because uh, an aerospace component as well as a defense component is TXT, uh, but it ha really hadn't made any progress either. So it's a mixed bag. There's no guarantee. Uh, so in this particular instance with the news uh, out of Israel, there's a couple other things that you could possibly look at as ways to play the news. Uh, defense stocks aside, there's a big energy component and we decided to play this both ways. One was with energy and the other one was with uh, the DFEN stock. Energy has made a higher high since the first day. Um, and gold, a lot of people flee to it uh, as a safety trade. Uh, gold has made uh, a higher high also with a big gap up today. There's also uh, a dollar component to it. There's this inter-asset correlation, you just can't invest in a vacuum. Uh, the dollar is coming off, but finally making, uh, finally bouncing after a pullback over the last couple of days. And with the dollar being up today, gold and gold stocks are up. That's not normally the way uh, the, uh, these usually have a negative correlation, but not today. So you got to pay, pay uh, attention to what the expectation is uh, and then pay, pay attention to what the correlations are. So it's never a sure thing, buy the rumor, sell the news. When something comes out of the blue, you've got maybe a better uh, chance uh, to play it. Um, so, but you know, it's never a sure thing. There is no, sh anything that seems like a sure thing in the market usually works out not to be a sure thing out of the shoot. It's what happens the, the following days after that initial news hits that gives you some clues into uh, whether this might be a lasting trend or whether it might be just uh, an over-exaggeration and things revert to the mean after the initial move higher. And here's what you need to realize, folks. These billion-dollar hedge funds, these guys, that, the big institutional money, they've got boots on ground and they're actually doing the research. They know about a lot of about what's going to be in the news and the breaking stories before it's being reported. If you don't think they have contacts and and people inside the media and inside the government giving them feedback and telling them what's likely to come down. Uh, trust me, they, 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 they know a lot of these stories for they're in the media. And that's why a lot of times you'll see possibly a run up possibly before it, it happens. A lot of the news now in this Hamas thing, I don't think that's the case because you probably would have seen defense stocks run up before then. And you didn't see that. In fact, they were in a downtrend. So that was the new, that was one of the news stories that really wasn't known in advance. It was tougher to know that. Um, but after that happened, you would expect ITA, the, 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 the uh, defense ETF, just to, to rock, just take off like a rocket ship. And it didn't do that. It didn't do that. And you got more than half the defense stocks still not looking that good. Some of them are starting to set up finally and looking better, but they're a handful and you got to select the best of the best. So you can't just knee jerk and go out and buy just any, just defense stocks uh, willy nilly. You just, that's not a good strategy. All right. Now I want to go back and I want to talk a little bit about bonds because we keep talking about this the bond market pain and in the bond market slaughter. And if inflation, which the last couple days, CPI came in 
hotter than they thought it was. They kept saying inflation is trending down, but it came in a little bit, not the stuff they like to count. Remember, they like to count baskets of stuff that is becoming more efficient, like computer prices are coming down because they're becoming, you know, technology is becoming more efficient. However, food prices and energy prices, that's the, 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 core, that's the one they take out to try to smooth out the effect. The problem is I eat food every day and I drive every day. So those are the two biggest components to my personal inflation. And those are the two things that are going up. In any event, when, the, when people realize that when you add back in food and energy, inflation is really hurting people and it hasn't gone away just yet. And so now they're worried that maybe it's going to be higher for longer. Now, the question, and I, by the way, I put all these in the show notes. I've got some show notes uh, uh, in there and it, a couple of different articles uh, uh, two of them are about bonds and one is the three myths about bonds and then the other one is the 5% bond market pain is uh, headed everybody's way. Uh, not sure I agree with that but this guy makes a couple of good points. He makes the point that you know, uh, housing market pain, government pressure, the crowding out we've talked about, stock market risk, the office debt time bomb and private equity deals have gone dry. Pensions are in trouble. Now, the good news is pensions finally might be getting a reprieve because now they can buy bonds and have a higher yield. And so they can actually, because see, pensions are required to own a big chunk of bonds to match their demographics and their age, their population. And so they had to own bonds last year when bonds were in a bear market going down. They couldn't sell them if they wanted to. That's the problem with the pensions. They're structurally wrong. In any event, it's a good article. You can go read it if you want. But the one article I do want to go over is the three myths about the bond market. Number one, safe bonds are also risk-free. That's right. There, there's no such thing as a risk-free bond. Even though treasuries, by my license, I can tell you treasuries are risk-free. The government, the regulators will say, allow us to say treasuries are risk-free. Problem is, it's all about purchasing power. How much money will that the bond coming back, you'll get your money back and your interest because they own the printing press. They're not going bankrupt. But how are you going to get, what is that going to be worth? What's it going to buy? But the safe money is basically, it says safe bonds are also risk-free bonds. Not, that's, that's correct. Federal Reserve policy determines long-term rates. I even had people reach out to me on the Twitter and ask me some questions, messaged me on Twitter saying, the, uh, talking about the Fed and long-term rates. Folks, the Fed doesn't control long-term rates. Now, they can manipulate a little bit by buying long-term bonds or selling long-term bonds, but they don't generally uh, adjust their balance sheet too much. They did in 2008, and they'll do it some, but normally they'll use the interest rates. But they uh, uh, shorten the shorter end of the uh, curve Lastly, an aging population means future bond yields will be lower. The theory is that older people will buy bonds because that's what they're supposed to do. The problem is Japan, that hasn't worked in Japan, and they've got a much aging population. So here's the one thing that you need to understand about bonds. Bonds are actually very complicated. They're just like, they're similar to stocks. So with bonds, you have actually two different interest rates. You've got the stated rate or the coupon rate on the bond. So General Electric or any company, Pfizer, issues a 
6% bond. They're about to issue it. They're about to issue a bond. Morgan Stanley and Fidelity is going to help them. They're the underwriters. They say, what's the going rate in the economy right now? Well, it's 6% for a bond like you, for a credit quality, double A credit quality like you. So they, they put on their bond, they're about to issue 6%. By the time they print those bonds and get the underwriting and do it six months later, and by the time they issue those bonds, the stated rate in the economy, it would just be coincidence if it was still 6% in the going rate in the economy. That's known as the effective rate. So you have the effective rate in the economy, the real interest rate in the economy, and then you have your stated rate on your bond, your coupon rate. If that bond is still, if the interest rate in the economy is still 6% when your bonds are issued, then your bonds are going to sell at par. They're going to go for $1,000. Par just means $1,000 increment, the face value of the bond. However, if interest rates are now at 8% and my bond's only 6%, my bond is worth less than a new bond at 8% or, right, at the going right in the economy. So my bond is going to sell for a discount. It's going to sell at a, it, maybe a, a 950, not a thousand. What that's actually doing now that I'm paying less for the bond, I'm getting that stated $60 at 6% a year. At $60 a year. Now I'm the new buyer of that bond is actually getting a 6% yield because he's buying that bond at a discount. I'm sorry, he's getting an 8% yield. He's getting the going rate in the economy because he didn't pay par for that bond. He paid it. What that's doing is it's setting your bond to the effective rate, the going rate in the economy. Okay. If interest rates drop and they're at 4% and you have a stated rate of 6% on your bond, your bond is worth more. Your bond is selling at a premium. So you'll sell that bond for $1,100 or something. That's actually setting your, a new buyer is only getting 4% the stated rate in the economy. So the old, ad, the old joke on Wall Street is what's the difference between a 20-year bond, same company, same issuer. What's the difference between a 20-year bond with 10 years left to maturity at the same interest rate and a newly issued bond by that same company that's a 10-year bond. In other words, they're both 10-year bonds. The answer is nothing. That 20-year bond, even if it has a different coupon rate, as long as the same senior, senior bond, the same, same general bonds, general obligation bond, they're both going to be priced at the going rate in the economy. Okay? So when people tell you, you don't, you just buy bonds and hold them maturity. That's the message that Wall Street tells the retail investors. Real guys on Wall Street, they don't buy bonds and hold them to maturity. They trade the cycles. Now, it's not as active as stocks because you have longer cycles. So you've got a big 40-year super cycle interest rate in bonds normally, 1981, all the way till last, all the way till the beginning of 20, end of 2021, rates came down. Now they've started going the other way, and you've seen what's happened in bonds. Last year, bonds had their worst year in history of bonds. They were down more than the S&P. Okay? So, so normally, bonds are safer than stocks, but there are certain time periods, especially when you have inflation. Inflation is kryptonite to bonds. It's worse than rising interest rates. You get rising interest rates and inflation, Katie, by the door, they're going to get slaughtered. Now they've gotten slaughtered. When the Fed stops raising rates, 
bonds will actually not only have a nice yield, they'll also give you capital gains as rates drop. Are we there yet? I don't know. I wish I did. If I did, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. I'd own the small island of Hawaii, right? But point being is we'll know it when we see it. We're going to pay attention to interest rates. We're going to pay attention to inflation. And you'll see what bonds are telling us. But here's the main point. Forget about the, the weekly or the daily movements here. Over the next year or two, once the Fed starts actually finally taking their throat off the interest rates off the economy, and it becomes a little apparent, they start getting a little more dovish. See, right now, one uh, uh, Fed governor comes out and says, oh, I think we're probably done. We really don't need to raise anymore. And someone else in the Fed will say, you know, we probably need one more raise. They're sending a little bit of missed signals because they're trying to stall. They want to kind of feel out the economy a little bit more to see if their rates are actually working, which they are. They want confirmation of that. They don't want to take the brakes off too early because they don't want to have to reverse course and reverse course again. Then they look like they've lost control. Guess what? They already have. We just don't know it yet. This is a confidence game. Now, here's, the, here's what I'm telling you. If it becomes, if the investors, if people become confident that rates are finally peaked and they're going to come down, stocks and bonds will both do very well. Okay? And probably go. If rates continue to rise, the dollar gets stronger, you're defending the stronger, but bonds will go down more. So once you think that bonds are interest rates have peaked, that's really the time to own bonds. So in any event, I just wanted to address that because I see all these articles right now talking about doom and gloom and the end is near and it's coming, and it might. But bonds. I've heard about this big bond market riot. Now, that may happen. I'll tell you how you're going to know, folks. Don talked about it. Don told you that during fear, during sell-offs, gold and bonds are positively correlated. That's not normal. Normally, they're inversely correlated, right? Dropping rates, a lot of money printing means inflation. That's gold, good for gold, but, but, but bad for the dollar. However, when you start raising rates as strong for the dollar, it's bad, bad for gold normally. However, when you have fear, knee-jerk reaction, people go to treasuries and gold. They both go to those two. Th Even in the 30s, gold did great. You've heard that deflation, gold doesn't do well. That's not what actually happens in history. Actually, people fly to gold because they're scared to death. And they think that's safer than maybe a U.S. dollar. Right? Or the Weimar Republic. People went to gold. You owned the currency, you were done. So at some point, when we have a big sell-off, will people just go to gold and stop going to treasuries? That's when you'll know that there's been a decoupling in the confidence of treasuries. Now, I'm not there yet. I don't think we're there, I don't think we're there yet. We're in trouble, and we got too much debt, and we got to start paying down our debt, and stop spending money like a drunken sailor. If we continue for our deficits to, to mushroom and blue and go out of control, then yeah, at some point we're going to hit the point of no return and we're getting closer. But we're not nearly like Japan or even China or even Europe. It's all on a relative basis. So I see all those scare articles and all that stuff, and it very well may happen, and it's going to happen at some point. But hell, Japan's been 
putting lipstick on the pig since 1991. So we're not quite there for the great reset yet. I know a lot of people are talking about it. I follow some of that stuff too. There's some good long-term uh, uh, consequences if we don't fix our problem. But right now, what we're focused on is how do we protect clients and what do we do? Are bonds a buy or sell right now? And are stocks a buy and sell right now? Obviously, disclaimer, nothing's a guarantee. All we're trying to do is enhance the probabilities to put them in our favor. So with that, Don, setting the table, I'm throwing it to you and the team at Revere. I'll start out with a review of uh, the S&P 500 and what's happened over the last couple of days since we had uh, a lot of our rules are based on the methodology of William O'Neill, which to summarize it is by the best when the market is in an uptrend. So uh, leading into last Friday, we weren't in an uptrend, we were in a downtrend. So uh, we've got, we kind of split our portfolio among uh, passive investments focused on the market indexes and then active investments when the market is in our favor and leading stocks will outperform the indexes by a factor of two to three or more if they're uh, true leaders. So with the S&P 500 being in a downtrend by uh, the middle of last week, we had no more individual names uh, in the portfolio and we were just holding uh, our passive position in the S&P 500 as long as we were holding above the 200 day moving average. That's the black line on the S&P 500. And the reason for that is simple. The market never gets into serious trouble unless the S&P 500 breaks below the 200 day moving average. And if it does, typically the drawdown from peak until you break there is somewhere between 9 and 12%. Uh, if you break below there and we enter a full-fledged bear market, uh, since similar to what we saw in Q4 2018 when uh, Jerome Powell was not in sync with what the expectations of the market were, what we saw in COVID and what we saw in 2022 uh, with the inflation bear market. Once you get below that black line, all bets are off. That's where all bear markets occur. Uh, doesn't guarantee that a bear market's gonna happen, but this is where we wanna be maximally defensive for our client capital. So we held the 200 day moving average and then we had uh, this O'Neill follow through day, which is the signal to look for leading stocks and leading sectors uh, with the market wind seemingly shifted from being in, uh, in our face to at our back. And we found plenty of good stocks that were uh, acting well and we started buying them uh, starting last Friday and proceeding through Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, funny thing happened uh, over the last couple of days though. On Tuesday at one o'clock Eastern time and on Thursday, at one o'clock Eastern time. And Dan, this gets back to the confidence in bonds and the confidence in government. At one o'clock is when they do the treasury auctions. We had what was perceived as a poor reaction to the sales of the bonds that they were trying to sell. And we sold off Tuesday afternoon, recovered Wednesday, there was no treasury auction. We're having a great day Thursday, in fact, challenged new recent highs. And then that one o'clock bond auction came out and we sold off really harshly. Uh, bounced into the close, had some follow through strength uh, Friday morning, but then started selling off again. Uh, 
there are a lot of geopolitical, obviously, uh, cross currents to what's going on, but you can't ignore the action of what's going on with the bear market, with yields, uh, what's going on with the dollar, what's going on in gold, and what's going on to individual names. Individual leading stocks held up just fine until uh, they started selling off this morning. So this morning we've trimmed several positions and this also corresponds with this green line here. This is, I talked in the video uh, last night that when you have a sell-off and um, it, it forms a bottom, an inflection point, in this case, the low of 43.25, uh, we're just at that level right now. So it's important to hold that level uh, otherwise, we'll get even more defensive. Uh, but that corresponds with a break of this green line. We know from historical studies that when the markets and leading stocks are trending above this green line, which is the 21-day exponential moving average, the wind is at our back, and it's sort of a green light to follow through and pursue our uh, our discipline, which is put more money into the market, put it at work, uh, lay off of the defensiveness a little bit, uh, but with the feedback that we've gotten Thursday afternoon and then following into this morning with the sell-off, we're breaking below that 21-day uh, moving average. And we'll also, we're also seeing some of these recent leaders uh, not act as well as they had been working. High interest rates are like kryptonite to growth stocks. And let's take a look at interest rates here very quickly. We'll look at the 30-year bond. Uh, and it peaked. Late last week, interestingly, it peaked on the day that we had the follow-through day and rates started coming off. They had a big bounce yesterday after that bond auction, and they're down a little bit this morning. Uh, they're attempting to bounce, and uh, prices, prices. Have, yeah, the prices are trying to bounce, right, yeah. which means the yields are, are down a little bit. But the recently what we've seen is, um, is uh, when when the, the uh, interest rates were going up, stocks were also coming down. Now today we've got interest rates down a bit, but stocks coming down also. So that is another reason to be more cautious than we had been since we got that signal last Friday to um, put more money to work. So we don't like what we've been seeing over the last couple of days. By the end of the day, we may be back above the green line, the 21-day moving average. That's what happened yesterday. We undercut it, closed back above it. We've undercut it again right now, uh, and we undercut and have reclaimed the lows uh, of Thursday. So that's a somewhat of a good sign, but we're also seeing uh, leading stocks, the NASDAQ 100, have a below average day today. This had been the leading index. Things that lead are entitled to pull back a little bit, uh, but we also use these moving average averages as reference points. And the NASDAQ 100 broke below the 50-day moving average today after spending three days above it. Uh, is that mean that it's absolutely going lower? No, by the end of the day, we could be back above there. But it tells us that we need to pay attention to our cost basis for everything that we bought Anything that is uh, hits our stops, we obey our stops. Anything that has had a negative reversal on heavy volume, you need to pay attention to that, possibly sell that. But one thing that is working, uh, and we increased sanctions. We've obviously Middle East, that's always going to uh, spike oil. But in additionally, we increased our sanctions on Russian uh, oil products this morning. So energy, after having that initial gap up on the Middle East, 
is following through and making new highs. You know, the, the, the news <laughs> isn't static. Uh, but uh, NRGU is a position that we have, and this is acting very well, up 7% today. So we've got a combination of um, some things that are working and some things that aren't working. Let's look at real estate with interest rates going higher. Uh, real estate has been in a serious downtrend. It had a counter trend rally. Uh, and now yesterday, real estate is coming off. Uh, so with the failure in real estate, we bought uh, an, an instrument called DRV, which goes up when real estate is down. So you can see it was up yesterday, and it's up mildly today. So well, good, good. I was good. I was about to correct you because I was like, wait a minute, we don't own real estate. Quite the contrary. I didn't want you to have people right. think you were you were buying real estate. Right. No, not buying real estate. Shorting real estate actually with that failure and and you oh, when you buy these instruments these inverse instruments you always look at the chart of the underlying product the the these um like drv is called a derivative meaning it gets it its price it derives its price from something another instrument in the market in this case it derives it from real estate real estate goes down drv goes up uh, right now, we had a failure with real estate at the 21-day moving average. We use this as our intermediate term indicator. Uh, broke back below it yesterday uh, and is going further to the downside today. And it's it's a quick and easy stop. If real estate starts going up above the inflection point, which was the high of Wednesday, will be stopped for a very uh, small uh, loss. But it puts the risk to reward in our favor. Uh, so we're... on constantly scanning various sectors. We had a great breakout in semiconductors yesterday. So we got long semiconductors above the 50-day moving average. What's happening with semiconductors today? They reversed uh, and broke back below it. So we stopped out of our semiconductor long position this morning for a small loss. We'll take small losses every day of the week because it's, um, the trend, when you catch a strong trend, it'll pay for all of these little paper cuts that we uh, lose a few percent on. Uh, so it's just a matter of sticking to the discipline, paying attention to what's going on, not being a deadlights, accepting what the market is telling you, and um, well, yeah, reacting accordingly. So, so I want to clarify something. So when he says that, uh, uh, you know, little paper cuts and it's, it, 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 a loss only has, you know, to two, three or four percent loss. He's not talking about on the total portfolio. He's talking about on that individual position, but that individual position will only have a negative 0.2 or 0.3% effect on the total portfolio. So it's small. He's talking about on each position size, not on the portfolio as a whole. Um, one last thing. Right. Yeah. 0.2%. There you go. Now, is on the on the total portfolio that's our target that's the maximum that we aim to lose on anything that we take so we can if be you wrong hit your five stop times yeah. in a row yeah if we hit our stops and we're wrong five times in a row we only lost one percent on the portfolio right it's, it's right. um oh and one very, other thing very small paper cuts and one other thing i wanted to emphasize to make sure people understood Don was talking about the weak demand in the Treasury auction. It didn't go very well, the long bonds. Because people ask me, well, why doesn't the Fed just, you know, the inverted yield curve, why don't they just bring long-term rate, why don't they let long-term rates go up? Or, 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 you know, they don't really control the long end. But when it's weak demand, what does weak demand mean? Folks, 
Keep it real simple. When you're talking about prices, it's supply and demand. You've got a lot of supply, prices come down. You've got a, a, a strong demand, prices go up. So, so here, you had a weak demand, no buyers. Prices come down, meaning bond prices. That means interest rates go up. To attract people to buy those bonds, they got to lower the price to a yield high enough that people will say, you know what, for that, I'll buy that bond. And so that's what we're talking about. So when they say a weak auction, anytime you say the treasury auction went weak, that means rates are rising. Okay, if it was a real robust, if it was oversubscribed bond market, that means it was bid back down. It was the prices were bond prices were bid up. And so yields actually came down. So I just want to clarify that. All right, Don, uh, do you want to go to the guys? To the gu yeah. yeah, let's go to the guys, see what they have for us today. Let's start off with tethers. Yeah, so. Going off what Dan talked about supply and demand and identifying accumulation distribution, I just wanted to point out three um, ways I identify institutional accumulation within the base of a stock. So Don, I'm going to pull up PDD. And so since we're in the business of co-tilling the institutional investors who manage billions and even trillions of dollars, we want to know whether they are buying stocks, accumulation, or distributing stocks, um, selling them. And so if we were to look at this chart, the first and foremost, the most obvious way to see that an, an institution's accumulating stock are massive gap ups on volume, especially on earnings reports. So Don, if you're to point to the first one on May 26th, and that, yeah, that one as well, 8.30, and that was even more um, of an obvious sign that institutional investors were piling in to the stock. The second sign I look for is just when you scan across the volume signatures, you want to see uh, what some might consider skyscrapers of blue volume. Um, you want to see up days on larger volume and down days on lower volume. So if you, if you were to go to 526 uh, on that gap up, we had 20, over 26 million shares traded. And then the subsequent days, volume tapers off. And then if you were to look at each individual bar, it is dominated by up volume, above average volume versus down volume. And so that is the second way I look for institutional accumulation. And one more thing about this chart before we go to the next one, Meta, which shows it um, in a clearer way. If you were to go to September 21st, we had that gap down right below those previous lows and the 21 EMA. And then the next day, immediately we got back up. And to me that you might be like, oh, that was weak on the previous day, but this is institutions stepping up to the plate and supporting the stock. And so that is one very subtle um, signature of institutional demand. And Don, if you pull up Meta, it shows it even better on this chart. And there's multiple examples in this recent action. And so if you were to look at August 18th, we moved down and then volume came in above average volume and we closed near the highs of the day. The second day, August 25th, a week later, again, uh, moved down, shook out the lows and closed higher. And then recently, um, August 27th, no, sorry, not August 27th. In this recent pivot, um, we also shook, shook lower, closed higher on above average volume. And this is where 
I was starting to get interested in the stock. Institutions are clearly stepping up to the plate, supporting the stock. And then afterwards, we put in some tight closing days. And then we, on the follow through day, we broke out. And now we're, we're trending higher, pulling back now. And this is where we have to see if we have abnormal action or normal action. And we just have to evaluate day by day. Um, just one extra thing, tight daily and weekly closes are also another sign of institutional accumulation. And so if you're to pull up a meta chart, in, on the daily chart, you can see the tight closes. If you're to pull up a weekly chart as well, you'll see that you have tight weekly closes. And so the, the three main things I look for are gap ups on earnings or some other fundamental, fundamentally changing news, strong up days on above average volume, dominating down days on above average volume. And the more, the better. And then third is more subtle, but it actually strengthens the base is a shakeout. All right. That was awesome, Ted. Thanks, Ted. Let's go on to Connor now. He's got a couple of uh, slides we can take a look at and uh, take it away, Connor. Yeah. So I wanted to show uh, this is like a breath sentiment kind of oversold, overbought indicator that I've been using as of recently. And I think it can give some pretty good signals and good thing to add to the toolbox and something we're using here at Revere. So basically this is the bullish percent index. We're using it on stock charts, which is a website. And basically what this indicator represents, it's the number of stocks on point and figure buy signals within an index. So it's using the point and figure chart, how many stocks in the certain index that you're using are generating a buy signal. And this calculation is taken by the number of stocks showing a buy signal divided by the total. And that's how you get your readings there. So in that picture, that's the S&P 500. And in the most simple form, above 50%, um, bulls are gonna be in favor, below 50%, bears are gonna be in favor. And then you can look to play the contrarian when you get readings above 70 or below 30. And those, those two represent overbought or oversold. Um, so yeah, so in this chart, Don's got up, this is of the S&P 500 and I, that blue line there, I've marked different turning points in the market and below this chart is just uh, the S&P 500. So you can see where it was at. And when we're looking at the two most recent examples, on July 24th, this reading generated a signal of 80. So very overbought. Um, and it, you know, when you look to the left, that was also double top and the market top three days later, and we haven't retested that level ever since. And then just recently when Don was talking about that area that uh, we bought a few names and we were at the 200 day, this indicator also uh, flipped back below 30 and hooked back up above. And this was on October 4th. And that was pretty much precisely when we bottomed. So these can be good tools. And um, if you look further to the left on this chart, I mean, the October bottom, this indicator got to 11, put in a higher low and then came back up. So like anything, if you're in a trending market, these things aren't going to be as useful because you know, a market can keep going higher or lower regardless of what these secondary indicators are showing. But given the environment we're in right now, 
you know, no real clear trend. These can be super powerful in helping yourself position for short-term moves and, you know, offset certain positions with hedges and whatnot, like Don was talking about with, you know, DRV. Um, so yeah, and you can use, there's a bunch of these for different sectors. If you want to go to the next chart, Don. The, the next one, it's just one of the NASDAQ composite and similar thing. Um, you can see the chart, the cues below when this indicator's flashing those extreme overbought, overbought signals. More times than not, um, the cues have put in a short-term top. And, and you compare this with the RSI as well. You see those when it's living above that overbought um, level and living below the oversold level. That could give you another piece to the puzzle to try to to try to give you a better read on the market. So, and they have these for all the spider sectors. So you can look at you know financials, real estate, etc. So this is I think this is pretty good thing to add to the toolkit and definitely helps in in market timing. And and the extremes are so important. If nothing else, it tells you don't pile into a bunch of longs when you're already at the top uh one of the at an extreme level and don't be shorting the heck out of the market when you're at an extreme level to the downside and we use these secondary indicators and it's like a set of dominoes when when they're all lined up the same way and then they all flip to the opposite direction you see the market you see that impact of that when you've got enough secondary indicators, NASI RSI, overbought, oversold, uh, bullish percent, uh, sentiment, all these things that we track. Uh, when everybody is on one side of the boat, the boat is either going to tip over or people are going to have to go back to the other side of the boat to even things out. And um, at the extremes, you know, the market doesn't ever go straight up or straight down. It's always going to revert one way or the other, and it's uh, critical to keep the boat uh, at uh, at an even keel. Good stuff, Connor. Thanks. Hey, hey, well, I'd like to add one thing. You know, the point and figure charts, the point and figure charts have actually been around for That's one of the oldest charting methodologies, and they used to do it by hand with graph paper. And it used to take them a long time. And then with the advent of computers and in the 60s, they started being able to do it on computers. And I think, Don, you'd know this better than me. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I think that Bill O'Neill, he was one of the first eight guys to really start putting charts and graphs on computers. And I think he was uh, instrumental in starting to uh, get uh, uh, point and figure uh, uh, on computers, start doing charting on the computers. Uh he, well, he did charting. He did the, the traditional charting like we're seeing in MarketSmith, but uh, he wasn't a huge point in figure. He wasn't a, okay. I, yeah. I, but that's uh, what, but I do, uh, there's there's a definite advantage uh, to doing that. It takes the time component out of it. Oh, it yeah. just looks at price, it's X's and O's and yeah. uh, making new highs. and Yeah, point uh, point figure was very time consuming when you had to do it by hand. Computers made it a lot easier. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. All right, Mike, what do you got for us this week? All right. Can everybody hear me? Yes, sir. All right. Um, so I want to talk about a couple things, but don't worry. I'll make it, uh, I'll make it brief. Um, we'll run through this pretty quickly, but, um, the first thing is over the weekend, there was, there was an article, uh, not, not sure if our viewers have heard this, but if not, um, 
Exxon uh, made a deal to buy Pioneer Resources for $60 billion. And they're creating a shale giant. It's the largest acquisition since 1999 when they acquired Mobile. And what this demonstrates is that Pioneer Resources, most of their operations, they're predominantly in the Permian Basin. And what this demonstrates is that Exxon believes demand for U.S. oil production will last for many decades because they wouldn't make a $60 billion acquisition if they thought oil was done in, in the next few years. So what's significant about this acquisition and, and this posturing is that WTI stands for West Texas Intermediate. It's the crude oil benchmark for the U.S. And that oil comes from this region of the U.S. in West Texas called the Permian Basin, Southwest Texas. And the Permian Basin, what's really special about the Permian Basin is that it produces the highest quality oil. And that oil is called uh, sweet, um, sorry, yeah, light sweet crude oil. And what that means when you hear sweet and sour crude, the difference in that is the sulfur content. So sour crude usually has around 2% sulfur content, and then sweet crude has, has like maybe 0.2%. So sweet is much easier to, um, it's just much, much higher quality, easier. It's to also find. much greener, much uh, greener. Much greener. Yeah. It's just be better, better in every way. So. What's special about the U.S. and the Permian Basin is that it's very, very, with the shale revolution that, that happened in the early 2000s, it's very, very cheap to produce oil in this, in this region. Um, it comes from shale rock, so it's very easy to, to extract. And it's an extremely resource-rich of the highest quality oil. And what's interesting about oil, too, is that if you look at the rest of the world, there is a lot of oil in, in regions like Canada, obviously the Middle East, uh, South America, the Gulf of Mexico, but all of that oil is predominantly the, this lower quality, heavy, sour crude. So the Permian is, is the single best region, and that's why Exxon made that, that big acquisition. And for me personally, it's, it's important. Uh, I, I like that acquisition a lot, and I, I believe on the podcast I mentioned Oxy before, and as many of you may know, Warren Buffett has a big position in Oxy. I have a big position in Oxy. Um, I like Occidental a lot because a few years ago in 2019, I believe it was, they they merged with, uh, they made an acquisition for Anadarko and they set up the largest uh, uh, shale producer in the Permian Basin. And they've got, they're the lowest cost producer and they've got extremely high quality, quality wells there. And that's that's important because when you're investing in commodities, at the end of the day, these commodities companies, oil producers, miners, whatever commodity it is, they don't have pricing power. So they're subject to the, to the fluctuations in the market. If the price goes up, they make more money. If the price goes down, they lose money. But when you're investing in these commodities companies, what you really want to look for is the ones that have the highest quality assets as well as the lowest cost of production. And something else that's important, not just for commodity producers, but in general, and I think one of the most fundamentally overlooked metrics when you're investing in any company is management. And management, it's, it's hard to gauge the quality of management. You got to do some research and uh, make some, some character assessments that are pretty, pretty hard to make. I mean, there are some, some quantitative methods uh, 
or quantitative measures that you can use to judge uh, management, but it's mainly a more qualitative thing. But Vicky Holub, who's the CEO of Oxy, has shown really great capital discipline for, for many, many years. She's a, a, a great leader in that space. I have full trust and conviction in, in her. So management is a big thing for me, but really for any company, you should always look at management. Um, and, and yeah, what I was talking about before with free cash flow and all of that stuff, uh, at the end of the day, it all comes down to capital allocation, which comes from the head. So management is in charge of, of that capital allocation. So that, that, that's really important. And then, um, so yeah, that's, that's Oxy, the Permian Basin. Uh, in the future, oil will um, eventually die out. And what's really interesting about this scenario we have now is that we've seen a massive increase in the price of oil but we haven't seen a massive increase in the rig count. If you look, the rig count has actually decreased. And the reason for this, if you go through earnings calls and listen to management, they're saying they know the government is out to slit their throats and put them out of business. That, that's, that's a fact that, that the government hasn't stupidly, has not been, um, uh, let's say, um, disguised about. They, they've been very clear that they're trying to put the oil companies out of business. So instead of doing what they've done in the past, where they flood the market with oil, invest all of this money into building more rigs and, um, and yeah, investing a lot of capital, what they're saying is, look, we're happy with prices now. The floor is around $80. We've got great free cash flow at those levels. We're going to maintain production as is and return all our money to shareholders because there, there, there's nothing else we're really trying to do with it. We're not interested. The, the government's out to get us. Forget that. So it's a really interesting dynamic. Oil prices, uh, yeah, the floor seems to be $80. We'll probably be there for a while and eventually go higher until um, oil's done. But with this acquisition, as I said, um, Exxon saying it's probably going to be a few decades before oil is done. So we'll see what happens there. But um, yeah, like Oxy a lot in the Permian. And then um, the last thing I wanted to talk about is quickly uh, some technical patterns. So you may hear a lot online, on Twitter, everywhere, a lot of people talk about these technical patterns and specifically the head and shoulders pattern. And I've seen a lot of uh, sort of misinformation. People don't really understand the, these technical patterns and they don't work out a lot of the time because they're missing a few things that I think are important to mention. So the first one, an example I wanna use, if you pull up AMR on the daily, this is a very clear uh, head and shoulders pattern. Um, it's, it's a, a shorter time frame, uh, head and shoulders pattern. So these usually resolve quicker and doesn't necessarily mean the trend is over. You'll just get a, a quick correction. But as you can see here in late September, when it made this initial, when it made the left shoulder, it increased on really, really large volume. And from that peak in volume, you can draw a downtrend line all the way until the break from the right shoulder yesterday where the volume spiked. And in a head and shoulders pattern, that's the way that the 99% of them that actually work develops. So you've got to have that volume pattern as well as the, the actual head and shoulders pattern on the chart. And for a real head and shoulders, what you need to see is that big spike in volume on the left shoulder, then the volume comes down, increases a little bit into the head, but it's not as much volume as you had on the left shoulder. Then it dies out, and then when it finally breaks, you get a big surge in volume. And that's basically exactly what we saw. It's clear as day on, on the chart. Um, you can even see it with the relative strength line as well. I would avoid this for now. Maybe it finds support. 
Um, I can get into another video to not keep this one too long. You got, you've got measured moves as well from a break of the head and shoulders where you can see from a technical perspective where that move should uh, resolve and where it can find support. But um, that, that's pretty clear. And then another one, uh, a, a little longer time frame head and shoulders pattern is DVA. And if you pull up that chart up, this one uh, what was like a one month head and shoulders. So as I said, it should resolve pretty quickly. But DVA was a more uh, multi-month head and shoulders pattern. And going back to, um, I mean, the, the trend, yeah, maybe, maybe it started in June, but where I'm really looking at it is, is in July. So that $100 level, that, that Livermore level, you had, um, this one isn't as clear. I don't like the volume profile as much, but it's still, still pretty, pretty significant. And you can see now on the break what's happened. But um, in July, you had a run up. Um, then you had high volume in August go into the head, but then it kind of, uh, the volume tapered off. And then you got a surge in volume on this break of the $100 level. And now it's at $73. And this one, um, it could be, could be a, a long-term top. Uh, this is something I would definitely avoid. I would not try to cut them on this one. Um, will certainly take a lot longer to resolve. Um, so those are just two examples of head and shoulders, but I wanted to point out that volume because whenever I hear or see head and shoulders, they don't mention the volume and that's almost the most significant part. So definitely look, look, look at the shoulders patterns. And back to you, Dan. Thanks, Mike. That was, I, I like that volume part. In fact, I'd, I'd like both of you guys, both you and Ted to do a short little video for Revere University on that. You could do the head and shoulders uh, and then Ted can do uh, his top. Those were uh, both great topics. I like those. Um, by the way, and Don, do you have anything else on the market? You're done, right? No, I just want to reiterate what we're looking for is whether or not we reclaim the 21-day moving average on the S&P by the end of the day and uh, the NASDAQ 100, the QQQ, preferably we want to uh, be able to reclaim the day moving average. We're battling with those levels right now as we speak at 1243 Eastern time on Friday. All right, folks, listen, um, there's one other article that I did not bring. I, it's a little bit complicated. It's talking about what is allowed and not allowed in self-directed IRAs and IRAs. In fact, in IRAs, you can actually own physical real estate or physical precious metals or private equity. The problem is you got to get an alternative custodian because Schwab and Fidelity and those kind of broker, they don't want anything that is not a paper asset they can't just put in a brokerage account. If you, it's a physical asset, you got to hold it. You got to get what's known as an alternative custodian. Well, they charge a fee to open up the account a couple hundred dollars and you got to get a couple hundred dollars every time you do a transaction. But then you have to get an appraisal every year. Point being is it turns out to be very expensive. It also turns what could be capital gains into ordinary income. Okay. You also lose a lot of the things in real estate like depreciation and other things you wouldn't get. So listen, it's a lot more complicated than that. So before you start doing a bunch of alternative assets in an IRA, call me. I mean, it makes sense sometimes if you're doing big dollar amounts, but if it's not that big, normally the fees are going to eat your lunch. If it's only a fifty dollars or $100,000, generally it's better just to own it on the outside and, and deal with it that way. But, but again, it all depends on your personal situation. Folks, listen. Everything, I, all the articles and stuff I talked about, we put in the show notes. You can go read on your own. 
If you've got any questions or any comments, you can always reach out to us. You can send an email to me directly at dan at revereasset.com, don at revereasset.com, Michael, Ted, or Connor at revereasset.com. And you can always, always, always call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH. Up, you can just go to revereasset.com. Up in the right-hand corner, there's a contact or a subscribe button. You can sign up this this podcast that goes out weekly and as well as Don's Daily Market Insight videos every evening the market is open goes right into your inbox. We won't spam you or reach out to you in any way. It's up to you to reach out to us and tell us uh, you'd like some help. And next to that subscribe button is a contact button and it sends me an email directly right to my inbox and you can ask about a stock or you can say I'd like a complimentary portfolio review, find information about Revere, or just want a topic you want discussed on the show. Revere, we're about, we're a fiduciary advisor. We only manage money on, an, on a fee basis. We don't do commission th- th- things, so there's no conflicts of interest. It's about strategy, not products. Folks, have a great weekend and stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week on your money. It's not about how much you made in the markets, it's how much of that you can keep. Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.